0: Joining us this week on the Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Regional Master Instructor Marty Miller here with my co host, fellow Regional Master Instructor Wendy Batts. Wendy, how's everything going today?
1: It's going great. How are you, Marty?
0: Good. I'm looking forward to this week. You know that uh, we've been searching through the Facebook page, and both uh, you and I communicate all the time with the direct messages we get, the emails. Nutrition always seems to be a topic. So I know that you and I are both excited to bring in cat. Barfield, the Vice President Nutrition Services for DOTFIT and also Registered Dietitian and Nutritionist. So excited to have a, a really accomplished guest this week to talk all things nutrition trends.
1: Yes, let's bring Kat in. So Kat, Hello, Hey, good to be here. Uh, well, thank you because we know that your schedule is extremely busy. Um, and so I'm just going to jump right in. Um, I recently read something. And when I say recent, like within today <laughs> about this Splenda skill that's going on. So I am going to hit it, like hit you up right from the beginning and yeah. ask you, based on what I'm understanding, there are people yeah. out there that think that Splenda specifically yeah. causes cancer. So can you yeah. shed some light, my friend?
2: Yeah, sure. So this is all over, you know, the nutrition sphere, if you will. And you know, the New York post put out something and it said, the chemical found in Splenda damages DNA and is deemed genotoxic. So I think that's probably what happened with media headlines, um, taking things sort of out of context. So to give people um, sort of a little bit of background on it, basically the researchers of this study, they took um, cells and put them in a Petri dish. So it's an in vitro study in a Petri dish versus an in vivo study in the body and humans. So, and what they did was they basically um, overloaded these cells with, it wasn't even sucralose, which is essentially what Splenda is. Splenda is the brand name. And um, noticed some, you know, elevated, slightly elevated markers of DNA damage. So when you do the math on it and you look at the study a little bit more closely, basically what it is, I wrote it down, you would have to consume around 367,000 packets of Splenda a day, or 44,000 diets of, of, I'm sorry, cans of diet soda. So um, yeah, I would ignore that because there's loads and loads of data that has deemed Splenda to be safe, or sucralose I should say, not Splenda specifically, sucralose.
1: Okay, so if you're drinking that much, you know, Coke or pop or, you know, things that have this type of uh, ingredient, you're saying, then you're in word trouble than just damaged DNA, probably. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I mean, it's again, and then at the world, I believe it was the World Health Organization came out with a statement about um, using sugar sweetened beverages to treat obesity, saying it was essentially not advisable. And there's a lot of data that shows that when individuals replace sugar-sweetened beverages, right, juice, regular soda, et cetera, um, with calorie-free beverages that can be sweetened with a non-nutritive, no-calorie sweetener like a sucralose or um, others, that it is an effective weight management strategy. It's not a treatment per se, but it's a good strategy. So, you know, people need to know these things, you know, because we tend to take these headlines and run with it. And I don't know, people love the word toxic nowadays, like everything's toxic. And as you guys know, you know, the dose makes the poison, the dose. And I just read to you what the dose was for these individual compounds for, for, for sucralose. So, yeah, let's just squash that, you guys. If you're drinking a diet soda, you normally do that, or you put a little Splenda in your coffee. There's no cause for concern. Okay, you can relax. (laughs) I'm going to keep drinking my Coke Zero every day, okay, people?
0: There you go. That's great news. But two things I picked up on very quickly, and I don't want to let them pass by, because I think that's going to set the stage for where we're going and also how Wendy and I always talk about NASM. And, you know, we know the history between NASM and .fit, and we can cover that as well. But, you talked about the research and the evidence so the key thing here is you know everybody on here today knows that NESM is an evidence based approach model but can you talk about you know dot fit strategy cuz i always quote it as what's on the labels you know in the you know what's in the you know in, on the labels in the bottle yeah. but also you know people have to be very careful of reading a headline how do you yeah. help people that don't have the background you do to understand where to get their information from and how to kind of maybe question or challenge what are those headlines. Mm-hmm. It'd be very easy if it's in the wall street journal, the New York times. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's gotta be the end all be all.
2: Yeah. So one of my jobs I get to do is I get to teach fitness professionals around nutrition and nutrition related topics. Right. I do you guys, I do that for you guys as well. And number one is you, you can't trust everything you read. So it's, we teach trainers to question these headlines. And then we like to teach sort of the hierarchy of evidence. You know, what's the hi- what's the best evidence versus what's the most questionable evidence? Obviously, anecdotes, you know, he said, she said, you want a question. And then the, the, the credible evidence comes, as you know, from our research institutions at typically universities that publish science that are reviewed by other individuals in the area in that you know, field of expertise. And then, you know, that science gets critiqued, et cetera. They make edits. And then it gets published for us um, on, in PubMed, right, which is the National Library of Medicine online. But consumers don't like reading, you know, these in-depth studies, right? So what we do is we try to break it down for them and then deliver it to them in digestible bites. And we do that in a myriad of ways, whether it's in-person training, webinars, courses, like the Certified Nutrition Coach, um, which I helped review and wrote a chapter in. So we do it through trying to teach people to critically think and then understand what makes evidence credible or not.
1: I like it. Well, well, Kat. That kind of brings me into maybe the next question. And those of you guys that are joining the Master Instructor Roundtable with myself, Wendy Batts, and Marty Miller, we have a very special guest, Miss Kat Bearfield, joining us today on nutrition trends. So she just squashed the information that you saw in the in the, uh, <laughs> in the, the uh, newspapers this morning um, regarding Splenda. But when we're talking about regulation and everything, can you talk a little bit about? how are supplements regulated? I mean, we've talked in the past about third party, you know, testing and blind studies and everything. But if you go to a nutrition store, Mm -hmm. can you safely buy something off of the shelf and it be legit or like to kind of, to go a little deeper into Marty's question, like how do we know if it's good or bad? Yeah. So let's talk about supplement regulation.
2: Cause when I lecture across the country, I even got to lecture in Germany, as you know, Um, But in the United States specifically, you know, I ask, do you guys think supplements are regulated? And and most trainers say no, they don't think it is. In actuality, um, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, does oversee the supplement industry, and there is legislation that provides what's called good manufacturing practices or rules that the supplement industry is supposed to follow, supplement makers are supposed to follow to ensure that supplements are safe and effective. The problem is, is that supplements are never approved for safety or efficacy before you walk into, let's say a Walmart, GNC or Amazon or anywhere online. So it's an honor system. So you can go to a store and buy supplements that are not effective and that are potentially contaminated. That happens all the time. The FDA um, maintains a database online with their thousands of, I believe it's over 2000 now, listed contaminated supplements with things like prescription drugs, anabolics, et cetera. So unfortunately, um, you know, that can still happen. Now, the second, the second half of your question is, can you buy things that are legit? Yes. If you know what you're looking for. So first and foremost, does the product even work? Are you familiar with the science? What does the science say? And that's why I do some of what I do, right, is to educate people on what the science shows. Does creatine work? The answer is yes. You know, do fat burgers work for the most part? No. You know, so things like that, that we sort of try to pass on to trainers and consumers. Um, And then you want to know, well, am I, what's on the label of this product? Is it actually inside here? Is it legit? Is it high quality? That's where third party testing comes in. Right. So you're wanting to look for some credible third party testing agency, whether it's consumer labs or USP or informed sport or NSF certified for sport. We like NSF certified for sport because it also tests for banned substances. And we all work with athletes. Right. So we don't want our athletes testing positive for banned substances. And we certainly don't want the normal gym member taking something that that has banned substances. So those are the variables. So just sum it up the new supplements are regulated, but they are very loosely regulated. Yes, you can buy products that are ineffective and not safe on the mass market. And yes, you can buy products that work if you know what you're looking for, the right dosages, ingredients that work, and third-party testing. It takes me forever to answer these questions. I'm sorry. I try to go as fast Great as-
0: answers. <laughs> we love the detail, Kat. We love the yeah. detail. So... You know, kind of going down that road of supplementation. So, you know, I've been studying aging and, you know, the health span versus lifespan. Wendy and I've done different master truck roundtables on it. You, you know, we know that's critically important and a big thing I think fitness professionals are going to see going forward. So, can you spend a little time and maybe if you have to separate it, men versus women, the micronutrients, at, you know, for disease and aging? Because obviously we all want to live a very healthy lifespan. Yeah. You know, so I think that that's critical to understand those needs.
2: Okay. I can't answer this quickly, but I will try.
0: Okay? <laughs> take your time.
2: All right. So, trainers talk about metabolism all the time. Our metabolism is so important, right? I'm like, all right. So, what does it take to run your metabolism? Normally, they're like, well, you have to have food. Okay. Macronutrients, macros. Everybody obsessed with counting macros. We got to have the right macros, protein, carbs, fat. But you also need micronutrients vitamins and minerals, and there's 32 vitamins and minerals that are essential to human health and longevity, right? And essential meaning your body requires them, but does not make them with the exception of vitamin D if you get adequate UVB radiation from the sun year round. So how does that relate to longevity? Well, vitamins and minerals, right? A lot of them have dual roles, dual functions in the body. First and foremost is survival. You know, we've got as a, as a species, humans are innately programmed to survive first and foremost, so that you can reproduce and propagate the species. All mammals are wired that way humans included. So in the United States, what do you guys think? What do you think? Micronutrient intake, are people getting enough vitamins and minerals from the food they consume? What would you say?
1: No.
0: Okay. And, Not even and close.
2: That's the answer, right? You can look at scores of data, whether it's individual diet analysis, population data, um, where you analyze diets, most people don't get optimal amounts of vitamins and minerals, all 32 plus of them. So what happens in the body if you don't get enough micronutrition, vitamins and minerals? Well, it's going to prioritize survival. So let's take an example, right? Um, vitamin K fat-soluble vitamin found in your leafy greens and cruciferous vegetables. You and I both know most people don't optimize or take in sufficient amounts. Well, what does the body need vitamin K for? Well, it's got to make blood clotting proteins. It's gotta be able to clot your blood so that if you have any internal bleeding or external bleeding, you don't bleed to death and die because you can't propagate the species, right? You can't help us if you're not here, right? So vitamin K is also needed to bind calcium and create these proteins in the body so that your calcium can be transported into your bone, your skull, your teeth, et cetera, throughout the body. Well, if you're not getting enough vitamin K through your leafy greens, your cruciferous vegetables, your fermented foods, the body goes, well, I'm just going to use what you give me so I can keep you alive. I'm not going to make those other proteins over there, right? Because my priority is to keep you alive. So then without these calcium binding proteins to transport calcium from in the bloodstream into the bone, et cetera, what do you think happens to this calcium that's floating around? Well, have you guys ever heard of plaques, atherosclerotic plaques? So what happens is you end up getting what? Plaque buildup, but it takes decades and decades and decades. So you don't detect it until when? It's too late. right. Right right? And it's the same thing with calcium. Calcium is needed for muscle contraction, but you also need it for your bones. 99% of your calcium is in your bones. 1% is tightly regulated in your blood, just like your blood glucose is regulated, just like your blood sugar is regulated, just like your blood pressure. The body likes to be in homeostasis, right? So if you're not getting enough calcium and most people need three to four servings of calcium rich foods a day, do you think most Americans are getting that? No, no right? So what happens? The body goes, yep, I'm going to keep you alive. Let me keep your heart beating. Let me keep your blood levels really tightly regulated so your heart can keep contracting because it's a muscle, right? And uh, your bones just going to have to suffer, honey. (laughs) So then what what happens? Decades and decades later, people end up with osteoporosis, osteopenia, and they end up being frail. And, that, and that's what we call the diseases of aging, mm-hmm. okay? And people want to focus on, oh, my God, it's the toxins in my environment. It's my sunscreen. It's the cholesterol. But you're not paying attention to your micronutrition. What are we doing? Makes are we sense.
1: professionals? See, now I'm getting, like, all hyped up, right? Let me just calm down.
0: No, I love it. I keep it going. I love it.
1: <laughs> well, well, Kat, you know, in that situation, you know, this happens over decades. You just said it. What do like what does someone do if you know they go to the doctor and they you know do their physical and all of a sudden they are now at risk for osteopenia that's going to maybe prolong into osteoporosis. I mean you can't really reverse it because you've been doing it for so long or can you?
2: Yeah, with bone you can. My mom actually had osteopenia and they gave her a prescription drug and then told her to eat better and exercise, right? So there are things that can be done. Um, Just like muscle to a certain extent, you know, you can't get back to your 20s but you can build muscle essentially at almost any age. So there are things that you can do, but the best approach is to optimize your nutrition as early as possible and my question to you is how many trainers are talking about this
1: well i'm can i say something really quick um that's not enough but i think it brings me to one of the other questions that i really wanted you to discuss i don't think that that trainers aren't talking about it because they don't feel it's important i think trainers in my personal opinion even some people that have taken the cnc Mm -hmm. are scared to talk about it because they don't understand the scope. They don't understand what they can and cannot say. And they don't want to be liable because they're not a registered dietitian. So so what do you do?
2: Okay. So scope of practice for trainers with nutrition. What you cannot do, regardless in the state that you work in, is you can't treat or diagnose a disorder or a disease. Okay. You can't do that. So unless you're licensed like myself or a physician, etc., what you can do as a trainer is you can teach people how to eat better. You can coach them on how to, how to create healthy habits, but first and foremost, you have to have the right information, right? You have to have the right information, which comes out of courses like the CNC, um, the ma- master classes and things that you guys do, the different talks out of the research, and you can Again, help people improve and optimize their nutritional habits. You don't have to be a dietitian to tell people to eat more vegetables and to help to create help them create better eating habits to educate them on what are good sources of calcium or what are good sources of the omega-3 fatty acids, which by the way is important for brain health and longevity, as you likely know, Marty, right? A third of the brain is DHA. Most people don't get enough omegas.
0: I love my omegas and salmon and avocado and all those oh, fun things.
2: Oh, yeah. And supplement too. I mean, man,
0: Neil, put me on, I have the brain health every morning. (laughs) I need it. Trust me.
2: We all, and we all do, you know, uh, we could go on and on about these different micronutrients, but back to your question, Wendy is you don't have to be a dietitian to coach people on how to eat better. Mm -hmm. And what are good sources of all these various micronutrients? You do have to get training just like if you were to learn a new training technique you go to a certification and learn you have to get training and then you have to apply that knowledge right and i think the issue with trainers with nutrition is initially it's confidence is how do i how do i go about doing this well how do you get confident in anything it's it's reps right you got to practice you got to practice you got to learn you got to make some mistakes you gotta you gotta practice just like anything else and you have to integrate this information into your training sessions. So you can't, you can work someone out the whole entire, you know, training session and not talk about nutrition, or you can decide, no, I want to be the type of fitness professional that promotes health, longevity, and better nutrition. And I'm going to find a way to work it into maybe the warm up or the first 10 minutes or throughout the session. You know, there's a lot of ways you can do it, but, And here's the thing you guys know, right? The state of our nation, 70% plus seven out of 10 individuals are overweight or obese, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, osteoporosis, all these diseases of aging just keeps going up and up and up. Well, who's going to help that? Who's going to help prevent that? Who's going to help with that? What do doctors do? No disrespect to doctors. I have my doctor. I love my doctor. They know how to treat certain disorders, you know, et cetera. But in terms of optimizing nutrition, that's not their cup of tea. That's not their training. To me, that should be in our domain as health and fitness professionals. We should be teaching these individuals because they come to the gym and work out, nutrition and exercise goes hand in hand, as you guys know.
0: That kind of comes down to the healthcare versus disease care model, right? So we need to pivot. You know, we have a great disease care system, but we don't really have a great health care system. But, you know, switching topics just a little bit here, a, a thing that comes up all the time, just like Wendy said, we get these questions fasting. Now I have my theory yeah. about it because basically by seven o'clock, seven I'm done eating, wake hey. up at five, do my stuff. Mm-hmm. But can you go over the most recent research in fasting and, and what yeah. you think about it? And comma, if I could put it in there, I know there are some people who do not feel great eating in the morning, but if you can address, is that important? Is that not important?
2: Sure, sure. Okay. So let's just operationally define fasting, right? There's the term fasting, and then there's all different types of fasting. So the one that most commonly people think of is called time-restricted eating. And that's when on a day-to-day basis, you eat within a certain window. The most common being the 16-8. Fast for 16 hours, and overnight fast, eat within an eight-hour window, whether that be, you know, eight to three or whatever, or... Um, you know, 12 to eight, something like that. Then there's um, alternate day fasting, which speaks for itself. One day you eat, one day you either don't eat or you eat maybe let's say 25% of your normal calories, right? And then there's whole day fasting or prolonged fasting where you go days on end of not fasting. Okay, so what do we know in general about, let's just focus on time-restricted eating because that's the one that most people are doing, especially in our, you know, our industry. What the research shows in terms of weight control is if somebody is eating within a typical, like typical Americans eat within a 13 plus hour window, they eat across the day. So if they're eating like that and then they shrink it down to eight hours or less, it will spontaneously reduce your calorie intake by about 20 or 25%. And that is what leads to weight loss because people are restricting calories because they're restricting their
0: eating window.
2: Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It makes,
0: it makes total sense. And Wendy, if I can ask a follow-up, I think the biggest right. thing for me is, you know, everyone works out at different times, but f- being fueled to get a good workout comma. And then also I've known people who work out from five 6 in the morning and now they won't have any nutrition till noon. And I'm like, something tells me your body is craving nutrition after these intense workouts. And that's one of my concerns. So I'd love if you don't mind as a follow-up question to address that.
2: Without a doubt, without a doubt. Now, it depends on the individual. If you're talking about someone who's super active, who does high intensity workouts or weight training, then replenishing the energy you depleted during a workouts is going to be critical, right? It's going not just be going to be critical for um, recovery, but also for your workout the next day when you you know, when you hit the gym again. So, so that is definitely key. So, I think that timing of your food if you're doing high intensity or prolonged workouts that you should eat (laughs) prior to your workouts and then adjust your fasting window accordingly. And that you should also for everybody, regardless of your goal, should prioritize getting all the protein to optimize your body within your, you know, eating window, and that number is between 0.7 and 1 gram per pound of your body weight for people who are active individuals. You know, if you're sedentary, you'd get away with a little bit less, but you know, you gotta you gotta optimize protein for so many different reasons, right? So many different reasons, which we can get into if you guys want to. Now, in terms of longevity, does fasting enhance longevity? Most of that research has been done in animal models okay, and has not translated to humans. It hasn't been shown in humans yet, to my knowledge. Now, I know that there's been some um, early time-restricted eating that showed a benefit in, I think it was pre-diabetic individuals um, in terms of glucose metabolism and glucose control. Um, but again, that's, you know, one study, maybe two. So the whole longevity, fasting enhances longevity. Um, yes,
1: in animals, not so much yet in humans. So Kat, let me ask you a, a question. And this this is me kind of being selfish because I have a, a client that is, a, he is a professional athlete. He does um, fasting and he does intermittent fasting where he does a, you know, time restricted block. He works out first thing in the morning with me and we go through the model. So it depends. He's either doing one, two or five because we're going through and um, undulating his workout. And him and I have had multiple conversations because he will work out, you know, drinks a ton of water, you know, and he's very, very clean, has never ready for this, never had a sip of alcohol, nor does he plan to. He, he eats very clean. However, he waits until his time block, which is like three hours after we work out before he eats. Now, is there a certain amount of time after you do a high intensity or let's say even a phase five that he should be replenishing it? Or does it matter as long as it's done within a, a, you know, the day? So if you want to optimize your glycogen stores right
2: which is obviously the stored carbohydrate that your muscles rely on for fuel for generating atp and doing these intense workouts the sooner the better the more you delay you know then um the less likely it is that you're going to optimize your glycogen levels so i just wanted I that
1: time time so i could hit play yeah <laughs> I knew the answer, just so you know. Um, yeah. And I didn't think you were going to throw a depends because I gave you a specific example. Um, yeah. However, thank you, you. you. the right context, Wendy. Thank you for thank doing
2: you. that. Yeah, I'm <laughs> myself, but.
0: Well, if, if I can add a follow-up question to that. So I'm going to yeah. go back to the late 80s, early 90s, where everybody was just about pure bodybuilding. Yeah. So do you have that anabolic window where you've worked out, gone into a catabolic state, and now you need to switch your body to maximize that. You know, everyone runs to their protein shake right after they do a heavy weightlifting session. What's right. the science behind that? Do I have time or should I, you know, carry my shaker with me at all times and make sure I chug that protein after a, a good strength training session?
2: Yeah, you do have time. You do have time. So, so as you guys know, humans are periodic eaters, right? We go through these phases of being catabolic and anabolic throughout the day. So it goes like that throughout the day. And so mo- muscle protein synthesis or that muscle building machinery doesn't stay on all the time. Even if you ate protein and infuse it in an IV like 24 seven, you're not going to just have muscle protein synthesis on all the time. Like your Darn body uses refractory periods. So what I would say is the most important thing is to hit your daily target based on your body weight or lean body mass, which again is 0. 0.7 to one gram per pound of body weight. You can go up higher which is not gonna help with more muscle gain, but it can help with um, additional fat loss. Um, But the most important thing is to get your total amount. And if you are trying to optimize muscle, then you wanna spread those meals across four different meals throughout the day, evenly,
1: if you can, to optimize. Love it. Well, today on the Master Instructor Roundtable, myself, Wendy Batts, Marty Miller are here with our friend and, you know, expert registered dietitian, Miss Kat Bearfield, And we're talking about nutrition trends, which I love. I could talk about nutrition all day yeah. because I have like thousands and thousands of questions. Um, Mainly, I mean, I have taken my CNC and I love talking to you because it's like you kind of spark something new where I'm like, oh, I need to look a little deeper into this or, you know, and I'm hoping as you guys are listening to this um, that maybe she's barking some questions that you have and we are live. So if you have questions, please put it in the comment box. Let us answer, (laughs) let Kat answer these questions um, because if you send them to Marty and I via email, we're going to shoot them over to Kat anyway. So we we definitely want to get your questions answered, but Kat, you know, we're talking so much about restricted um, or fasting. So time restricted uh, eating, but what about there's, you know, you hear a lot now about the carnivore diet. And I've heard really positive things, and oh my gosh, if you eat this, then you're going to be more susceptible to cancer because of the the you know the red meat, and you know this is going to be long term bad for you. So, can you talk a little bit about it, and then what long term effects, good or bad, this may have? Sure, sure. So, just
2: real quick, the whole red meat and cancer um, risk has has based on observational data. And as you guys know, observational data, they basically take a bunch of people, they look at what they eat, and then they look at the incidence of different diseases and they go, oh, is there an association between the two? Obviously, there's no causal effect between the two. So it's an observational um, piece of data and it's not very strong. So there's that first thing on red meat and, and cancer um, <laughs> the thing on the carnivore diet is that any diet that excludes entire food groups is a red flag okay so our bodies need so many different nutrients and anytime you just take away a source of micronutrients it's going to be a problem in the body as you know because we need 32 different ones right and we need those to optimize longevity and health etc so carnivores i think of it as an extreme keto diet Right, ketogenic diets are less than 10% of your calories from carbohydrates or less than 50 grams a day. And essentially a carnivore diet is, you know, you eat the, you eat the entire animal from nose to snout and that's all you eat. Yeah. So, I mean, I, there's no research that says that it's, you know, optimizes longevity, that it's, that's a, that it's a nutritionally sound protocol. I know people like to say that plants are toxic, you know, toxic. They have toxins in them and things like that. And as you guys know, the dose makes the poison. I've never come across a patient that um, had to get in the hospital and be detoxified from eating plants. Like it just hasn't happened, you know?
0: <laughs> That's a very valid point, Kat. Very valid. So now <laughs> I'm going to ask my selfish question, but there is yeah. research behind this. And I think that there's a lot of people out there. So looking at caffeine. So I'm uh, not a fan of the artificial type of um, energy drinks and things like that. It's not my go to, but I'm a coffee fanatic. I love it. I don't necessarily even drink it um, for the caffeine per se. But, you know, can you talk about um, the health benefits of coffee? you know, we obviously have to be careful of drinking the Starbucks with all that I drink mine just with cashew milk. And so it's, it's truly the coffee that I enjoy, but where, you know, do I, if I want to have another cup, do I switch to decaf at some point? Um, Because I don't seem to feel the effect, but you know, is, is there truly the health benefits that I've been seeing and told in research on drinking coffee?
2: Yes. So yes. Coffee. And it looks like four to six cups a day you know, it is associated with so many different well, – the health benefits of the polyphenols.
0: You just made my day, cat. I'm yeah. good. And I'm the good. coffee
2: bean, the antioxidants in coffee beans. So antioxidants are protective of your cells. They prevent damage done to your cells. So all the polyphenols in coffee, whether it's decaf or caffeinated or whatnot – Wonderful benefits, decreased risk of different diseases, including diabetes, I believe. So, I'm a fan, four to six copies. Now, dose makes a poison. So, too much can be problematic, right? Mm -hmm. Especially on the caffeine side. So, caffeine in itself, and typically in supplements, it's a purified form of caffeine called caffeine anhydrous. That's typically what it has. If you're getting caffeine from like herbal sources, it might not be as, um, you know, pure, so to speak. So, It does have performance benefits. As you guys know, it increases alertness, focus, energy, it increases fat oxidation, all these wonderful things that can benefit in endurance athletes It increases time to exhaustion. So it is a proven ergogenic benefit. Um, So I would say Marty four to six cups, those are eight ounce cups a day is what it is. Um, And don't drink it too soon to, you know, to bedtime because it can, caffeine has a half-life, I think of four to six hours, which means half of it is still in your system four to six hours later. So in some individuals, it might not cause sleep latency. In other words, it doesn't delay your sleep, but it might cause problems with sleep quality. Now, you know your body the best, so maybe that doesn't affect you that way. But yes, coffee's beneficial. And so is caffeine, like I said, in
1: appropriate dosages. Uh, uh, that makes me very happy because Kat, I drink coffee all the time, but I will say what I've noticed that for me personally, and I think this is what you were saying. everybody, we say this all the time, everybody is different. And if I have caffeine after 12 o'clock, uh, I am pretty much up for a very, very long time. And so I switched to decaf. If I have to have coffee mainly because of the taste, um, I'm going to definitely try to focus on that. But but I have one final question. Cause I, again, I know we have, you know, just a certain amount of time and I really do appreciate you, um, you know, giving us your time today. And again, guys, if you have questions, please make sure you put them in the comments. But when people are talking about supplements, I'm kind of going back to where we started. Mm. I've seen this a lot on our Facebook group and mm. people are saying, what are the best supplements for fat loss or muscle gain? Or mm. is you know, can we even say this is something we want you to take? Again, Mm -hmm. it kind of goes back into scope of practice. So would you be willing to kind of talk through that a little bit?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So the best quote unquote supplement for fat loss is a protein rich meal replacement shake in place of one to two of your normal meals or snacks a day. Tons of research on this. What it does is obviously it increases your protein intake, which is great for fat loss for, for multiple reasons. One, it's highly thermogenic. You have to burn about 25 to 30% of the calories in protein to metabolize and digest it, absorb it, et cetera. So it's going to help you burn more calories throughout the day. It's highly protective of your muscle tissue. And as you guys know, your muscle is predictive of your metabolism. It also has appetite suppressing effects. So it's going to naturally curb your appetite or hunger levels. So, so many reasons why you want to incorporate a higher amount of protein, um, especially during fat loss. So that's the best one for fat loss. Everyone wants to hear about some sexy fat burner or whatever. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> protein rich meal replacement shakes are black. By- and also, it also helps control calories. I left that part out, but that's huge. Because again, people have problems. They have portion distortion, right? So when we replace, let's say, a 200 calorie shake, which is one of my daily practices a day, um, one or two times a day, it reduces caloric intake and that leads to a calorie deficit, which facilitates fat loss. So that's it for fat loss. Now, muscle gain,
1: there are, I'm sorry, should I pause? You guys have a question? there was a question actually that came in. So I, I don't know if maybe this will kind of feed into where you're going with the next part, but it says, is pre-workout necessary before going to the gym? And what are the pros and cons? So while you're talking about this mix, maybe you can throw that in there too. A pre-workout supplement or a pre-workout snack or meal? Do we know? It it's just because
2: pre-workout. Yeah. So I would say. That if you're going in to do something like not intense, let's say you're doing your 30 minutes of cardio or maybe a low key, you know, weightlifting session, you're not really exerting yourself. then it's probably not going to be that big of a deal, especially if you're eating regular meals because you're not depleting your glycogen stores. You're not going to get like low blood sugar symptoms, et cetera. If you're going in to do, let's say, an intense training session an hour or longer, you're going to do cardio for over an hour, that's when you're getting into the places of depleting glycogen stores and uh, a pre-workout snack or meal would be beneficial. Now, a pre-workout supplement isn't necessary under any conditions, you know, necessary. But it's helpful for a lot of people, especially in the mornings when you need a little pick me up, you know, whether that's a cup of coffee or something with caffeine, or maybe some other supplements that could help boost um, your workout intensity, whether that's creatine or beta alanine or citrulline, things like that, that can
1: help boost your workout intensity so that you get a good workout. Okay. So I think they put pre-workout shake, but I think you just answered that by saying, you know, that it would be beneficial, not necessary. (laughs) Beneficial not
2: necessary is absolutely right now we can debate that on creatine because creatine has so many benefits with not just for muscle but also for brain etc. But specifically prior to workout no not necessary.
0: Excellent. Well, Kat, I know that uh, you stimulated a lot of things in my brain, I guess, pun intended, uh, really, and I've studied this, and it's so helpful to hear from someone like you that is just in the weeds with this every single day, because it's, you know, it's an ever changing uh, environment, right, with nutrition. So, you know, we know that you're an expert, we love everything that Dot Fit puts out. I know Wendy and I both get our monthly supplements through there because basically what's on the bottles in the bottle and we know that it's a third party tested and it's the best of the best. So yeah. I have a feeling cat, you're going to be hearing from us again in a couple of weeks or months with some follow-up questions and or part two of this, because this is such a, such a big topic. There's never going to be enough time to cover everything in 40 minutes. So, you know, on behalf of Wendy, myself, we can't thank you enough for your expertise and just how seamlessly and clearly you answered all of our questions.
2: Well, thanks for having me, guys. I'd love to come back. Let's do
0: Excellent. this again. We will. Okay. Excellent. And for all of you that joined us on today's Master Instructor Roundtable, thank you so much. And as always, don't hesitate to reach out to Wendy myself. And we look forward to seeing you next week on the next edition of the Master and Roundtable.